Welcome to Stemiverse podcast episode 26. In this episode, Peter and Marcus talk with Simon Maciel. Simon is a creative individual who reveals in educating people. Having graduated from university with a bachelor's in arts and a diploma of education, Simon spent the next seven years teaching drama, music, English, history, religious education and photographic and digital media. Her passion for technology endured itself in her teaching pedagogy and Simone co-led a successful and creative one-to-one laptop program in her time as an educator. Her areas of expertise include movie making, photography, public speaking and music integration. Simone has spent the past 17 years involved in musical theatre and she draws on this experience in her teaching practice. In 2012, Simone resigned from her full-time classroom teaching role to pursue a career in teacher training and currently runs professional development workshops for Mac One on a plethora of areas, of which the most popular has become STEM with a specific focus on coding and robotics using Apple technologies. Her focus is to redefine purpose and authenticity in teaching instruction and at the core of her philosophy is a central approach to ethics in coding. This is Stemivis Podcast Episode 26. Welcome to Stemiverse, the podcast that helps educators become awesome at teaching STEM, be it at home or in the classroom. I am Peter Danmaris, and with my co-host, Marcus Sharpe, our mission is to bring you the experiences of educators, students, and stakeholders who strive every day to make the teaching and learning of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, and art better. Hey, Marcus, where are you? You're not here. I am at home <laughs> to the coming fun Ah, that happens on Fridays. There's an emoji for this. (laughs) There's an emoji for (laughs) that, yes. yes. And those things happen on Fridays all the weekends. So very, very, um, you know, bad timing. But, oh well, I hope it's all under control. And uh, who are we talking to today? We've got a special guest. Yes, we have Simone. Is it still from Mac 1, I should ask? (laughs) Still from Mac One at present, yes. Congratulations. Awesome. Well, welcome, Simone. It's good to have you on. Thank you, Peter. Thanks, Marcus. Great. Um, would you like to start taking a few minutes to tell us about you, uh, who you are? Tell us who are you and uh, tell us what brings you here to the world of education and STEM. Okay. Well, thank you so much for having me on. It's um the long-winded public speaker in me really struggles to consolidate the uh, the information presented, but I'm going to try my best. Yes. So I'm the daughter of two Portuguese migrants who have their grassroots very humbly from two separate villages in Portugal. And they met in Australia, and I am the product of a wonderful love of Portuguese-born, Australian-met couple, Portuguese, lovely Portuguese people. I have two older brothers, and I spent most of my childhood immersed and ingrained in the Portuguese community, which has a lot of bearing and impact on, on who I am and how I've gotten to where I am at 34. 
I grew up playing soccer for the Portuguese community. I was a Portuguese dancer in a group. I played musical instruments in a Portuguese concert band. I attended Portuguese school every Saturday from five years old to 18 years old. And so I'm very ingrained in that sense of culture, in that European culture. It helps being a public speaker, having that background. And it also, I guess, establishes my love of language. I was your kind of average, academically struggling student in an independent school in Sydney. Um, we've lived our whole life in the same house. I'm still there 30-odd years later. I was terrible at mathematics and terrible at science. You'll be pleased to know that there's hope for those of us who struggle. And I was always really passionately involved in the arts and the crafts and your drama and your music and your, your, your really performance-style subjects and creative arts and uh, extracurricular activities. Where did you go to school? I went to school in, uh, in Glebe at a school called St. Scholastica's, which was very, very culturally based as well and had a, a huge focus on social justice, which also becomes embedded in my story, in my, in my life and personal story and what I do today. So that's, that's sort of who I am in a nutshell in terms of personally, uh, professionally speaking. My, my teachers were kind of mortified to find out that I was going into education at university because I struggled so much um, academically. And so I had this great love of everything and not wanting to pigeonhole myself in any sort of discipline. So dad started his life as a teacher and then became a librarian. And then mum started her life and ended it as a, as a, a, sorry, by the time she retired as a hairdresser. So I think I get my love of being arty from mum and my love of the education, liberal arts, academic side of things from dad. And so I went into university wanting to just study everything. And therefore, that led me to a, a beautiful education in the liberal arts at Australian Catholic University, where I studied history, English, religious education, drama, music and communications. And at that time, I started a, a, a drama club at university where one didn't exist, a, a theatre club at university. And I was really disappointed to find out that I couldn't graduate with a, I could not graduate from my arts degree with a theatre major. And I contacted the professors at the University of New South Wales and asked if they would allow me to study more than what was necessary by going there and doing some units in theatre and allowing me to graduate with my arts degree, having qualified with a major in, in theatre and literature. And so those two universities worked together to, to allow me to do that. My, my powers of persuasion at the time were very, um, were very solid. And how did you do that? Um, I did that with a little bit of difficulty, actually, Marcus. I had five yeah. jobs at the time. We're very modest wow. growing up. But we did not have a lot of money. Whatever money mum and dad made went, went to mortgage. We had, we had one TV growing up, and, and I used to sit in front of that TV every afternoon watching Julie Andrews sing to me The Sound of Music. Um, I had no computers. So being able to really convince my professors that I needed to have all of these disciplines more than what I needed to qualify, I was very blessed to be supported by them in my determination to, to have that under my belt on paper when I, when I graduated. 
funnily enough, I mean, being being interviewed for a podcast like like Stamiverse, I really have very little involvement with anything technical almost my whole life until I'm a teacher. So um, as, a, as a kid, I remember my godmother had a Commodore 64 and occasionally I would go there and, and watch her engage with this, what looked like a keyboard, with things happening on monitors and I learned to play a helicopter game. And then by about 1993, maybe 1994, my brother at the time was working as uh, a paper delivery boy and he saved all his money to buy me a Sega Master System 2. <laughs> and my love of video game consoles blossoms from there. I'm 34 now and I'm a collector of almost every console ever, ever released. And it also then affects or has a huge impact on, on where I am now in the world of, of STEM. So professionally speaking, once I graduate from my arts degree, I then enrolled in a diploma in education and I graduate as a literature and theatre teacher. Oh, where did you do that? That's my, my diploma in education degree was, uh, sorry, my diploma was at, again at Australian Catholic University. So I've had very, very concrete roots in uh, in religious education. I've been in education itself for 30 or 34 years of my life. And so I guess what you're really interested in is wanting to know where this love of uh, or involvement in STEM comes from or where it stems from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So where does the STEM stem from? And, and also to add to the complexity of the question, how different is STEM in, I suppose, religious uh, education versus other types of education, I wonder? Um, how rigorous is it, do you mean, or, or how involved is it? How different in, in your experience in any way? Um, look, for me, and um, I guess we'll get to the point where we're, we're going to unpack this, the world of STEM um, and if we're talking about STEM in the context in one branch of coding, has a lot of involvement with the ethics. I, I run a lot of conversations on the ethics of coding. And I guess my background with that sort of faith-based upbringing and that religious involvement and that religious education has imbued itself in, in how I've gone forth to be a niche presenter and a niche trainer in, in STEM-related activities. So it's ethics is, I suppose, uh, the differentiating factor is uh, more emphasised in religious schools, like Catholic system, perhaps? Um, funnily enough, Peter, it's actually reinforced in, in, in all sectors of education, not just in mm. Catholic schools. I mean, it's very much a, a focus in the Catholic schools, but even the independents and even the, the private schools really transform their their thinking about coding once they're challenged with those concepts of the ethics of coding. Mm -hmm. So what are ethics of coding? To sort of go back there, um, I've, I've spent the last four years now training teachers. I've become a professional development facilitator and I, I go into schools and I train teachers on how to integrate technology in the classroom in the way of making what they're doing in the curriculum more relevant and uh, more, more engaging and more contextually important. And in the last sort of two years, what's been the focus there is on the digital technologies curriculum, on coding, in robotics. And so for me, 
the very first time with, with my extensive creative background to be told that I am now going to be teaching teachers on coding, it was a real panic moment for me. And it's, it's probably my aha moment that reminds me on a daily of the need for really cemented, groundbreaking professional training for teachers that provides the big picture context for why and where and the necessity and the purpose of coding in this time period in our education system. So that that idea of the ethics of coding is principally and fundamentally probably about 80% of my focus in the sessions that I present. I refuse to speak on robotics or or on, you know, block-based coding on an iPad without first really pinpointing to students the importance of learning this in the context of what they're going to then use this for. And I Mm. think in education, we're really stuck. We're stuck as teachers on the why. Why am I doing this? Why am I teaching this? It became a mantra of mine as an educator to, to not go into a classroom and simply teach a unit of work or a program of work or a topic of work because a systematic published document told me I had to teach it. The question of why is fundamentally the most important question to me. Why am I bothering to teach students on a methodology or or a principle of theatre? Why am Mm. I teaching people about a time period in music? Why am I teaching people about structures and hierarchies in religion? Why am I doing this? And for me, the why am I doing this in coding has been the most explosive life lesson I have ever engaged in. Why am I doing this? And being able to challenge teachers to ask that question, not because there's been a new curriculum introduced, not because a principal tells them they have to teach this, but really fundamentally, why am I teaching this? So I'll start lessons in coding, I might take a drone into a classroom for a workshop that teachers think they are going to learn how to operate a drone. And they come out of a session understanding that from this point on, speaking of drones to your students has a higher purpose. Mm-hmm. Ask them, challenge them, what will they use their knowledge of programming a drone for tomorrow? What positive impact are they going to have on the world they live in right now because they know how to program this thing to move? So that ethics of coding is, unfortunately for me, probably a conversation that I'm not hearing a lot of or certainly enough Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. and probably one where I'm petitioning and really breaking out and making it my personal mission to have as many of those conversations or more of those conversations where, where possible. When you ask the why to the teachers, what are the responses that you get? You know, it's it's mixed. Um, and I have to be careful because I acknowledge that I put myself out of a job as a professional development facilitator if our teachers know how to, you know, integrate technology and use technology already perfectly. I have to acknowledge that their lack of knowing that is what keeps me in a job, my ability to train them properly. So disappointingly, I guess, the vast majority of existing teachers 
are simply doing this because they're being told they have to do this by a published, you know, syllabus or by a curriculum it's that they don't really know. Yeah, it's, that, that's it. That's part of what they're being told they have to do. Some teachers obviously have started to engage with my particular level of training and type of training, a workshop format, because they understand that maybe they're lacking their understanding of why, but it is not the vast majority of teachers in my experience. The why seems to not be a loud enough question. So when it comes to doing something like teaching drones, what would you give the why as, or the why response to that? Why is it important? The drones have really been, you know, in the last sort of six months, another another lighthouse moment for me. The first time I saw a drone being used it was at a, a conference and I thought, wow, we're really going too far in education now, aren't we? And I really got to this point where I thought, well, if I'm going to be organizing a workshop on this and if my personal mantra is on the why, then I really need to find out this why and offer some sort of purpose. And I started to do my research and I, I came up with some of the most remarkable uses of drones in the global world that have the most amazing impact on our humanity. I, I, I fundamentally love that idea of the Dutch student who in, in part of his university research prototyped a drone that was going to carry a defibrillator that was going to be, hmm. you know, able to be used by a paramedic, a sent ahead of any kind of traffic or obstruction to offer assistance to somebody in cardiac arrest. How many lives are we going to save with this technology? How many drones do we know we can transform from being properties of destruction that launch and detonate bombs to ones that can carry care packages in war-torn areas, in, in um, hurricane-affected areas. How many lives are we going to save with the prototype or the design of the drone that the Victorian paramedic has, mm. which is going to carry the, the flotation device that will be sent out to sea and drop to a person who is drowning? So for me, the, the drones and the ability to, to use them in the context, that global context and that, that humanitarian way has probably been my, my largest lighthouse aha moment in you know especially in the last sort of 15 years and I guess for me being able to provide those examples before I've even spoken to a group of teachers about what is coding to provide that huge big picture context is really relevant and the feedback that I get from teachers is that they love that far more than simply walking out of a session knowing how to write some basic block code that can launch a drone. That big picture context and their ability to understand that and then impart that in how they write their own programs has been transformative for them. And I guess what sort of keeps my heart, you know, beating in, in, in the need to organize these types of workshops. Yeah. I was just thinking as, as you were talking about drones uh, in the, the humanitarian context around the world. I was also thinking of how drones are used in science and space exploration and apart from telescopes, 
drones is really where scientists have been able to source pretty much the bulk of the knowledge that we have about the solar system. It's quite amazing, like the extent of the application From of drone. this technology. Yeah, it's it's just incredible. So uh, the the other question I've got is um, talking about the, the the big why questions that you are having and you're trying to explore and bring uh, forward. Do you think that STEM education in general is is a type of education that really is primed to asking such why questions? Um, STEM education is pivotal in in being the catalyst for asking the why questions. But what I what I really love about STEM education in that context, Peter, is that it's so much more than uh, a simply um, an exploration of why, because what it does is it's able to actually provide some of those very concrete answers Mm. to the why. Mm. Whereas in religious education, for example, we have a lot of those why questions with only interpretive responses. Whereas in STEM, we can actually ask those why questions and we can actually unpack. Exactly. And we can unpack the, the why responses so I think STEM is the catalyst for, you know, and the other thing that I really speak to teachers about is that being able to provide these why questions to students and constantly asking the why questions, even in the format of the lesson or the workshop or the day or the program or the year, actually gives them reason to continue evolving different responses or different solutions. And where else in our education system have we ever come up with those those multi-path options to continuously revisit responses that might change over time, asking those higher questions. Hmm. Yeah. How do you see um, then STEM education from, you know, as society is changing and, uh, you know, crisis around the world, financial, political, social crisis, what, like just to look at big picture now, how do you see STEM education fitting in all this? Uh, if a society is in crisis, do you think that having more people asking why questions, being educated in a particular way of thinking, let's say in our case through STEM, is a positive force in the world? I guess STEM, STEM really, and, and I'm not a fan of acronyms, but but mm-hmm. being able to sort of consolidate these great sciences and, and fields of of mathematics and areas where if we look historically at the world, our greatest monumental moments that have propelled humanity forward have really been underpinned by these discoveries in science and mathematics. Where I think we're starting to go wrong, unfortunately, is that we are not relying enough, or certainly we've had a gap or a void, in finding ways to solve these higher problems. And STEM actually concretes and roots itself in providing people capacity and skill to problem solve. Mm. On a global level, contextually, if we can train our current students in our you know, mainstream suburban classroom that they can actually solve any problem presented to them by understanding the principles of science and mathematics and engineering and and fuse those things with the technologies that exist, what is to stop those students being able to find a solution to feed the one in seven hungry people in the world? Our ability to provide our mainstream 
students now in 2017 with the belief that us teaching you this, me being able to teach you how to code, or me being able to provide some guidance in the big questions in what you're doing in your robotics and coding activities, where does the limit go? Hmm. And where does their understanding of, I can't do this, stop? Because all we're training them to do is to problem solve. And we're, we're training them to do that very creatively. And in some instances, we're training our students to say, there may not be one set answer here. You could achieve this by going here. Could you move your little character in hopscotch a different way? Can we train you to look at things from different perspectives? And in, in this, what I like to call the other learning, um, I, I don't walk into a session expecting a student to be completely fluent in a language of code, what I expect them to do is believe they have the capacity to, to have that principle of computational thinking that they are now a qualified problem solver. Hmm. And where does it be? Where do we limit our students? Their, their capacity to think of solving the world's problems. It won't end, providing that that's the train of thought we, um, we expose them to. I hope that answers your question there. Hmm. Well, that leads to another question. Just one more thing, since it's uh, in part of the uh, of the thing that we're discussing now is that it seems to me, based on your answer, that really where STEM style education shines is not so much in equipping students with technical skills, but with the increasing capacity over time to solve more and more complex problems. And uh, so our students become better problem solvers and they also become better at acquiring the technical skills that they need in order to solve those problems. Would you say that's um, a fair thing to say? Um, that's, you know, Peter, that's that's probably my focus in, in training teachers and training students is, it, it is exactly on that actually, to, mm. to understand that the essence of being able to engage in these STEM activities overarching this is to foster this idea that they can solve complex mm. issues. Mm. They may, and they may start very simply, but, but they need to understand as a succession that that is the path they will then follow. You know, I wish, uh, I really wish, and I'm, I'm hoping this is on my life bucket list in the next few years to being able to enroll in a master's degree where I can do the, the on ground concrete research that we are perhaps fostering the most creative, resilient, and uh, problem-solving generation to have ever walked the earth. I would love to do that research. And I think the way that we're doing that is through these STEM activities, because we've never had the capacity to, to really breed into our students, ingrain in their psyches that they can affect change on a global level before we had access to this level of technology. Can you please describe your process for preparing your professional development curriculum? The process is tricky because what we certainly don't have at Mac one is a, a set script and we don't have, you know, your one model fits all style of workshop. So what, what we do is Teachers will engage us, however they, they do that, through through either social media or through email or through phone calls. And we 
ask a lot of questions. Where are you at in the school? What is your vision? What current technology do you have? What are you aiming to achieve? What are the outcomes? You know, what areas of curriculum would you like to focus on? And from that, we then tailor a program that's going to suit that school with without we never really go in there with the intention of running a one-off workshop we go in into schools we consult schools and teachers with the aim of being able to provide them some sort of ongoing support so we don't really have a set structure to our sessions in that context it's tailored it's custom to what each individual teacher needs within within their working scope so we sort of segregate and categorize, and I really hate doing that. I'm, I'm such a liberal thinker. But we sort of start to, to put things together and we might say, we offer workshops in your sort of animated narrative style. We might do some sort of content creation. You know, we'll go in and we'll look at a unit of work and we'll find how we can use multimedia to create digital books and where that can take us. And then we have a lot of the, the coding and the robotics, um, the introductory sort of sessions. And so to, to say that we sort of have one set program or, or one set workshop, we don't. We have lots. We, we rely on being able to pull together all our very, very, very diverse skills, certainly mine, my love of the art, my love of the crafts, my love of language. And I, I really need to, to pull all those together and try and impact teachers using technology in the curriculum in as many different ways as possible to, to really cater for lots of different learners and to really retrain their understanding of technology within their own pedagogy. We should probably ask, what is Mac One? So Mac One is, uh, has a very interesting story at present. Mac, Mac One is a, a business that has three main strands. We have the selling strand. We, we sell computer devices, technology devices to education. We have a second strand, which is servicing. So we're in schools providing the break-fix service. And we have a third strand now developed by the, the then owner of the company decided that in order to speak to educators, you actually had to employ educators. And so we have this professional development branch uh, within Mac One, uh, a few years ago, the Mac One company itself it has its grassroots in Canberra. Um, many, many years ago, some twenty years ago, uh, a few years ago, Mac One sold to Dick Smith, and mm. that company, unfortunately, as we know, ended um, too soon. Yeah. And at the eleventh hour, we were actually, you know, at that point where we thought we actually may be liquidated here which was a very devastating concept to the world of education, particularly in New South Wales at that time, but other states as well. We then were purchased by a franchise of Harvey Norman called Harvey Norman Business and Education. So those two businesses came together. And, uh, and on the horizon, hot off the press, which I won't speak of, there may be another very good merger taking place in, in the next few weeks. But we continue to exist as that model where we sell, and we service and we provide professional development. Hmm. So looking at your Mac One website, the school professional development programs, seems like you've got quite a bit of experience uh, as a company in conducting workshops. And uh, I think that looking at the last few years of the developments, especially in the in terms of the various educational tools and computerized tools and programming languages that are coming out, uh, all of them promising to be you know, the best tool in, in STEM education that 
the world has ever seen. There's a lot of noise is, is what I mean. What would be a, a simple way for either a, a teacher or a school to introduce programming concepts, engineering concepts, uh, even mathematics concepts to its, sorry, not the mathematics, but you know, engineering as part of the uh, electronics and mathematics uh, to its students, uh, should they go out and buy, for example, uh, robots and then start doing visual programming through scratch? Should they go for Python? Should they do something else? Like, can you help us remove all this noise and uh, just uh, get back to simple terms in STEM education? Yes. We, uh, we live in a consumer world, don't we, Peter? Yep, and it's, too uh, much. it's very confusing for educators. It's very confusing for your mainstream teacher who, like me, did not grow up with computers, who didn't use computers at school, did not use her computers for HSC. It's very, very confusing. So when, when schools approach and engage with Mac One, I guess what distinguishes us, and I see a lot of this at major conferences, is that we're not shoving product down your throat. We're focusing on helping teachers to understand conceptually first the ideas behind computational thinking, behind design thinking, the very basic fundamental principles behind how science and maths actually marry perfectly with engineering and technology and the arts. And so if schools ask me that question, the first thing I would ask them is, what is your vision and where do you want to go with this? Because investing in the latest technology does not ensure quality control with what your students are going to learn. So I would say to them, probably invest less on every robot, you know, on the market and actually try and focus your funding on pulling together as many resources as you can and training your teachers on A, what is coding, B, what does it look like in the curriculum, and C, how can we attack this idea holistically as a whole school rather than as a separate aside entity within within what's happening in our, in our school systems and in our staff. So, um, you know, to go down any one path is probably not going to work. What I would ask teachers and, and principals is what technology already exists in your school? Let's unlock its potential first. And for me, um, my my specialization is, is on the Apple platform. That's where I train. Mm-hmm. I'm an Apple Distinguished Educator. Uh, I'm an Apple Learning Specialist now. But I wouldn't go into a school and say, if you don't have iPads, throw everything out and go buy iPads because that's not going to work for that school. So the first thing I would ask schools is, what technology do you already have? Let's unlock its potential first. Hmm. I would probably then see if they're happy to move to something simple like block code and starting to unpack those concepts within something as simple as Scratch or Hopscotch or Tinker or whatever they already have that they already exists in the school. I really want to move away and without a computer science background, it's funny that I even have the opinion, but I want to move away from block-based coding because I don't think that we're really going to teach students much about affecting the world they live in by stopping at something as simple as block code, certainly as an introduction. But I would definitely move beyond that. Used to feel this way. Um, you feel that way too, so Marcus? She, I used I used to having a look at the say the Lego platforms and or maybe Hopscotch a little bit, where they uh, abstract a lot of the the logic away into a single block and just magic happens. 
but certainly recently I've been using Scratch a fair bit and uh, the Microbit uh, Make code, and I found that that has been actually really, really quite amazing. Beneficial? Yeah, being able to actually knock something together quite quickly that's uh, practical and useful. For me, practically speaking, that's great as an introduction, but we need to be able to get to find the path or the journey where we're going to be able to extend those students mm. who who are going to take a particular interest in this to then train them how are you actually going to, to go forth and learn, you know, whatever, your Python or your, your Swift, your Xcode, how is it that you're going to do this later? So as a stepping platform, certainly. Would I expect schools to invest in robots? Not at the start. But we work with lots of different robots. We, we, I absolutely love the Sphero as a starting basis. And, and of sort of recent times in the last four or five months with my expertise in the Apple platform, the launch of the Swift Playgrounds has opened so many doors for, for teacher instruction because not only of its language using its, you know, everyday English pseudocode within the block code, but also because it talks to lots of different external peripherals. So mm -hmm. I certainly go into schools and ask, let's have a look at this together and we bring in iPads if schools don't have you know, the, the, the technology they need to, to sort of engage in this at the outset and say, let's unpack all this together and then let's see from what I have in my resources, let's engage with some spheros, let's engage with some drones, let's have a look at what Swift does with all these external peripherals and from there that might help you make a decision where you, where you might want to head in terms of your investments for those schools who even have yep. the money to invest, of course. Could you please remind us what Spheros and what Swift Playgrounds is, slash R? Sure. So with the release of iOS 10 on the iPads, which, which I, you can only update to iOS 10 after the, the generation of iPad Air, Apple released a free coding application called Swift Playgrounds. And Swift Playgrounds is, for me, transformative in this STEM journey because it bridges the gap between basic block code and script code. And we really, before Swift Playgrounds, it's, well, this is in my experience, we really didn't have that experience of application before where we're making this stepping stone between block code and full line code, script code. And so, and the fact that it's free has made enormous differences in education. It, it has made a huge impact. And what we're doing is engaging within Swift Playgrounds. Apple has invested a lot of money in creating resources for teachers to self-teach self at their own pace how to program using Swift within Swift Playgrounds. And so they have certain objectives, different activities that they need to achieve and within those objectives and those activities, they're actually learning the fundamental principles that they would then need later once they move to, if they move to, script code. Something as basic as what is a function is so easily presented within the platform, within Swift Playgrounds, that um, uh, you know during a session I might say, right, and using being able to understand even what a function is, is something that once upon a time we would have learned as computer programmers in first or second year university. And here you are being able to impart it to your stage three students. So that's what Swift Playgrounds is. And what they've started to do is they've started to, Apple has started to partner with lots of different robots like a Sphero. And a Sphero is, 
I, I love the Sphero. It's a it's a sphere robot. Uh, the latest version is clear, so you can see into it, into its its mechanical components, just like looking under the the hood of a car for us um, curious minds to see what it looks like. And it has an engine in there and a battery. And from the iPad or your iPhone, you can learn to program it within Swift so that you're navigating science and mathematic principles within a real-world 3D concept. And the other thing that Swift Playgrounds, I think, has done so well is it started to move forward in speaking to lots of different programming languages, which I am not an expert on in terms of script oh, code. Really? Hmm. Not yet. <laughs> I'm self, self-teaching, self-educating. And, um, and so it, it talks to lots of different external peripherals at this point, lots of different types of robots. And, and so therefore, moving forward, it would declutter a lot of that confusion because what, what I would encourage teachers to do is start with a language that makes sense or start down a path that makes sense like Swift and from there progress to learning all different things. So in Swift Playgrounds, you can only teach Swift, right? You can't teach Python or anything else like that? From my understanding, it's Swift only, and then it's what it's doing with the robots that, that can also interpret Python, it's working backwards. So it's using Swift to communicate with robots that once upon a time Swift wasn't communicating with, if that makes sense. I think it, they used to give you access to the Bluetooth APIs that are built into the system, and then you just talk over Bluetooth, which is uh, quite nice. And so what is Swift and why is it so important? So Swift is a programming language that, uh, that you can learn, uh, you can use, to then develop within Xcode and you know, to develop, I mean, to then actually develop, be an actual developer for applications and the likes and software programs for the Apple platform. So it's a language that you can you can use to build applications for iOS or iPhones and iPads. It's an actual high-level language, right? It's not uh, it's not like Blockly, which is essentially a language just for learning. It doesn't really have commercial applications. I think that's a the advantage, right? You Kids that learn Swift can actually program and create applications that can that they can upload onto the App Store, for example. That's right. If they have a, they then need a developer's license to do that. But yes, that's exactly what it is. It's it's a language. And if we sort of start to break that down a little bit, language is everybody's business within a school setting, hmm. and we could all learn to to actually embed this language within the framework of all our different faculties, even in high schools and all our different disciplines, and approach this from a digital literacy point of view. And as an English teacher, being able to provide students with access to a whole different language is advantageous and beneficial rather than detrimental to my already overloaded curriculum. Hmm. I just wonder, after listening to the discussion, is what we call STEM really dominated by robots and programming languages? Is STEM dominated by robots and programming languages? If you're the kind of educator who is going to not have proper training, I guess, in that and and go forth and sort of adopt everything ad hoc and try and do that, potentially, possibly, that might be a viewpoint. I don't think STEM is that at all. I think it relies on a lot of innovation and creativity and ingenuity and 
it it has the potential to be so much more than just pigeonholed as a science or a technology or a math or an engineering um, study. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that the market, at least to me, it seems that the products that the market is essentially pushing to the education sector have a lot to do with robots like the Sphero is a robot is programmable so it combines uh, various robotics technologies with with application development as a, as a programming interface to get the robot to do things but uh, yeah i'm always looking for products or ideas that also enable other parts of STEM education especially sciences and mathematics and this the i think the art is also more accessible thanks to the programming uh, component and the robotics component they can do a lot of art there but I feel that math and science is falling behind. <laughs> is it just my impression or is it you justifiable? Know, I have a wonderful experience in lots of different schools on how STEM works really well. I've obviously been exposed to, to areas where STEM doesn't work. Um, in, in terms of a uh, very overloaded industry by robots, Peter, as you're referring to, I do agree with that, and I do think that there is scope to lose the focus on the science and the maths. But as an example, I ran a Sphero workshop two days ago at a department school for Year 5 and Year 6. This is just an example. Mm -hmm. And we had the Sphero, and we had the, the application for the Sphero called Sphero Edu. And the simple activity of teaching students to block code their sphero to move according to shapes. So the challenges I issued was I want the sphero to move in a perfect square. I want the sphero to move in a triangle or whatever it was. At least four or five times in that simple activity, I had to stop students, come back to, you know, the board, and I had to explain to them that for a sphero to be able to draw a perfect triangle on the carpet, they had to understand how angles operated hmm. and then be able to understand how the Sphero was going to, to move according to the angles. Now, my maths teacher probably would have fallen off her chair if she saw me trying to explain that to <laughs> students because all of a sudden I'm saying to students, you know, a right, a right angle is 90 degrees, so to move right we have to go 90 degrees. Now we need to think in patches of 90 degrees. Now we need to think about to, to go triangle, let's think about what would 45 degrees look. Okay, now start to think in patches of 45, 45 and 45 and 45. And I actually had an aha moment there where I thought, I'm teaching really simple mathematics here, hmm. using Geometry. a robot that's making sense to students that didn't make sense to me at their age. And all of a sudden it's making sense to me because it's that physical computation of seeing that robot move that all of a sudden has made more sense to me, has been more relevant to me than it ever did using a pen and paper when I was in the classroom. Hmm. So I'm not sure that there needs to be that loss of the science and the math since that's the basic principle of the STEM hmm. field is to really focus on the science and the maths and the engineering. We won't have a Sphero workshop if I'm not teaching students to build a ramp, to, to get the understanding that the robot can project itself further across, across a playing field if we could launch it higher, and to have those basic theories of understanding underpinning it. 
So I, I really hope that the science and the mathematics is the main focus within those organized activities. So there's always an opportunity to insert pretty much anything <laughs> in, a, in a STEM curriculum because it is unified. I think that's the point behind it. It's not segregated. It's not isolated. It's, uh, it's opportunities to cross-contaminate it between different disciplines. So math and geometry, as you were saying, with this sphere experiment is definitely part of it. Yeah. So how should new educators get prepared for teaching STEM? You know, I, I feel so sorry for graduate teachers at the moment. I think about the copious amounts of theory that happens at university for educators, and I think about just how busy education is, and then I think now these teachers are graduating in a world dominated by computers, and they all of a sudden have to be STEM experts because they themselves were born in a time period of digital natives. And I feel so sorry for our graduate teachers How do they prepare is, I think, a very challenging question. For me, obviously, that method of chalk and talk never worked for me. I am much better at self-educating through observation. I, I can't tell you, Peter and Marcus, the amount of hours that I have spent on YouTube. I, I, I can't equate those hours. I did a computer science course on edX with Harvard, trying to just understand those basic principles of computer science before I even started to negotiate these workshops with teachers. I'm not really sure if the curriculum at the universities has got it right for our graduate teachers going into education, needing to learn all these concepts of STEM. But certainly if I was to offer those graduate teachers advice it would be somewhat controversial. The first thing I would say is don't try and do everything. Don't try and learn everything straight away. Focus on pedagogy and concentrate on being a STEM integrator rather than a, a, a STEM pigeonholed teacher. STEM shouldn't fall to just the one teacher. It should be everybody's business, as should literacy, as should basic numeracy, should be everybody's business. How do they prepare for it? I think You need to be very loud, you need to beat the drum, and you need to just get in the ear of management at the universities and at a school level and ask for training and ask to be trained by educators. That makes all the difference. Um, the amount of organizations that exist out there that are offering professional development and they have never spent a day in a classroom is dumbfounding to me. Hmm. And so I think investing in really quality professional learning opportunities by qualified teachers who have either upskilled themselves or studied it themselves or through, like me, through my own self-paced education method, learn from and surround yourself with those niche educators who, who are embracing STEM and who are embracing technology in general and really just know that this is not going away. You need to be a craftsman in, in what you're teaching and your pedagogy has to be the, the core focus of what you're doing. Hmm. Did you just describe teacher development and teacher education in an ideal world? Um, in an ideal world, yes. Yeah. And some universities are doing it very well and some universities need to do it a lot better. 
and it is a great passion of mine. Like I said, I, ultimately, I would love to, to go into my master's and then my PhD. And, and I would love to be that, that lecturer who really helps to train capacity and confidence in teachers who are going into the industry in, in these fields, in all fields, not just, not just STEM, but, you know, in, in that creative context as well. And, uh, and just make sure that these people are equipped with the digital skills that they, they need to, to even just exist in the digital world. Mm. What I'd like to know, uh, Simone, is your opinion in what is Australia doing right right now in education? Because a lot of things have changed over the last few years. We've got a new curriculum that states are starting to adopt a digital curriculum in, in particular. What do you think that we are doing right? Um, I think what we're doing really well is promoting and advertising the need for great innovation in this country. And we, we, we do that in a really great capacity. Um, sometimes I think that we may do that a bit a bit more of a scare tactic. You know, governments kind of say, well, we have this huge vacuum in innovation and, and that'll justify us spending all these, you know, millions on, on trying to, to, to equip that need to, to address that vacuum. I'm not sure that Australia lacks innovation. I think that we are, we are very blessed. We are very talented and very creative citizens and, and global citizens. So I think what we do well is definitely highlight the need for continued innovation. And I think the other thing that we do well is that we, we try our best to recognise when individuals have been innovative in really great capacity. Um, you know, I, I'm always very in awe at the media when they promote you know, a group of school students has developed uh, something in school that they're prototyping on the International Space Station. I think that's wonderful to celebrate that. And I think, you know, more of that is definitely important. I think the need for talking, even even generating that STEM conversation, and, and I don't want it to just be a current trend or buzz or movement in, in, in education. I want it to be lifelong. I want people to always have these skills for problem solving. And I want the I want media to focus on that as a long term, you know, and education to focus that on long term, not just as a current trend. That said, I think we, we don't do things. There's a lot of things that we could do so much better, Peter. Yep. You know, um, Kevin Rudd's digital education revolution, what, what was that, 2007, mm -hmm. that implemented late 2008, was remarkable and it was a game changer, but it went about it in the complete wrong way. You cannot put a, a digital device in the hands of every student at school without first training your teachers who are going to be these people's guide in how they're going to use the devices. And you can't do that without any release of policy and curriculum to, to complement that and then just decide that your teachers are smart enough to do this in their very busy schedules. So I think there's a lot that we could be doing better. We could we could remove the bureaucracy and politics from education. We can stop calling schools businesses and concentrate on their core business of learning and and sort of stop those interferences and and filter out the really negative noise and focus on being institutions that prepare people for the skills they need once they have left your presence. And get rid of exams, perhaps? Um, you know, like, I, I, I can't even tell you the last time that I sat an exam. Standardised testing, is it's embarrassing because how are you able to decide somebody's intelligence because of their ability to respond to a set question? Yep. 
It's just something anachronistic about it. Yeah, it's work in progress. I know that a lot of institutions are rethinking their attitudes towards standardized testing, and uh, a lot has been said about it. But I, I really would like to see a day where those are gone from the education or where system. Where we're focusing yep. more on that that individualized, you know, submission of portfolios yes, and yes. That kind of, um, and there are a lot of institutions who are doing that very well in mm. in different disciplines. And yeah, you're right. Probably we could do a lot more of that. Definitely get away from pigeonholing people's intelligence um, to one one method. Yes, I agree with you. That's the academic in you. <laughs> I've suffered through exams myself, so I know what it's like both both sides of the of the line as an examiner and as a student. Yeah. Right. So. Whilst you teach professional development, one question we like to ask our interviewees is what professional development have they done that they found most useful over the past year? And it's wondering, yeah, what professional development have you been to that you've taken that you found useful? Um, well, for me, I think the large-scale conferences have been a complete waste of time for me in, in terms of me attending. The edutechs of this world or the... The ones that become more trade show and less curriculum and pedagogical focused events. Yeah, the, the I spoke at Edutech and uh, and the name of my presentation was to code or not to code. That is the question. Looking at coding from the perspective of an English and drama teacher, and I had so much interest in that session because I spoke about everything from from the Commodore 64 to creating apps that recontextualize the study of a narrative for a year five student to films that have impacted my, you know, understanding of STEM. There was, it was just a mix and people walked out of that session and they said, your session was completely different to anybody else's because you weren't trying to sell us a product. And I thought, why on earth would you have taken two or three days off school to attend things that are trying to tell you to buy something. That's not at all what professional development is. Um, so what I engaged with, which I really enjoyed, was that that Harvard course, the Introduction to Computer Science on edX. I really love that. It's self-paced and you can walk away from that with the, the, the university lecturers there actually mark your content and give you feedback. And at the end, you do get a certificate. And so I think Engaging with those free self-paced courses online are really great, and I understand that teachers have almost no time to do that at present. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, the greatest professional development comes from engaging with teachers on a daily. So it's very reciprocal. Our workshops are very reciprocal because I provide such a safe environment for them to also teach me that I walk away from a lot of those sessions having gained more knowledge of things that I don't currently do or use and then can then implement into into the professional development sessions and the professional learning space spaces. So for me, the greatest professional development I've engaged with to answer that question, Marcus, is engaging with other like-minded peers. And the other one that I think I get the most amount of benefit from is Twitter, engaging in the Aussie Ed chats, even if I'm not contributing tweets to read different people's responses and to engage myself as much as possible with your Brett Salakis's and your Xena challenges of the world that is the greatest professional development that I that I am engaged with I should ask who are these people <laughs> these people are geniuses they are your innovators and these are the people who I really hope are your future 
politicians, um, education ministers, because I think if we had actual classroom teachers as our ministers or actual nurses as our hospital and, and health ministers, um, that would affect all the change that we need to have the whole education and the whole structure in this country perfect. We have your your Brett Salakas's and your Zena Chalich's and your, your Paul Hamilton's on Twitter are your innovators in the classroom who share their content and their knowledge to help as many people as is humanly and digitally possible. And they are probably people who I look towards as mentors to me because they not only learn the technology, but they then use that in their classrooms and then they feed that back to teachers and they generate lots of discussions and they are so unbiased in how they present their discussions and their contents, uh, their content that I, I, I'm, I'm so, um, I admire them so highly. And they're probably people who you could, have on your podcast in in future you know I'm, I'm very blessed that I'm surrounded by a lot of the people who you've interviewed in past are friends of mine from university and you know I know your your John Burfoots who are your absolute geniuses in technology are, are people who I engage with frequently and um they they are innovators in its true definition of of terminology we only have the best of the best on our podcast <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, Simona, I also wanted to uh, ask you uh, just one more question uh, that uh, I really like to know about. So, you talked about uh, self-paced video courses from Harvard, which is quite amazing. I've looked at those as well. I've taken a few, just really high-end stuff. But what about books? Uh, could you recommend maybe one or two books that have influenced you a lot? Look, again, the, the book space is, again, very busy, and there's so much content to filter through. And the ones that have really been useful for me from a, on a personal level that has affected my, my knowledge of STEM, Hidden Figures is one that I can't go beyond. The context of that story, because it's a real human story and its whole premise behind why we even compute in such a real-world context of science and human discovery is truly inspirational for me. And the other sort of books that I think are really influential on the iBookstore is a whole category in the Australian curriculum. Apple has released what's called the Apple Teacher Platform. And within them, the Apple Teacher Platform, there are digital resources in there which have lots of different types of programs and classroom activities that you can read and engage within, put into your, your actual you know, real context today, tomorrow, moving forward with your programming as a teacher. So I'd say any of those Apple teacher books are really relevant. Um, but but narrative wise, I'm completely transformed by by hidden figures. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. We'll uh, we'll put a link to that book in our notes. Awesome. Well, Simone, thank you so much for your time today. If our audience wants to reach out and get into contact with you, where can they do that? The probably the best way is to engage me at the outset on email. So smaciel at mac1.com.au. I'm sure you'll put that in the notes. Sure. They can call me directly on my mobile. They can private message me on Twitter, mac1 underscore education. Um, but probably email. Email would probably be the most, um, the easiest to access. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you, Simone. Appreciate your time. Well, again, thank you so much for your time. That's all for this episode. 
if you have any questions or suggestions, please send them to our email address, questions at stemiverse.com, and we'd be happy to answer them. Do you want us to interview someone in particular? Let us know. Visit us at stemiverse.com to get the show notes of every episode. And subscribe on iTunes by searching for the name of our podcast, Stemiverse. That is S-T-E-M-I-V-E-R-S-E. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.